Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome to Essex Church and to this religious community of Kensington Unitarians. It's Sunday morning, and it's good to join together with others for an hour of singing and silence, thoughts and prayers. And my hope is that during this hour, each of us will find something, something that connects with us, something that connects with our lives, some message perhaps from a deeper part of ourselves, some way to be held by that which we consider to be divine, that spirit of life and love that links us all. Ours is a community of all those who walk through our doors, so whether you feel quite new here this morning or are someone for whom this is your spiritual home, all are welcome here today. And I'm lighting its small but sturdy flame um, in recognition of the, of the fact that this week has been designated as Interfaith Week here in the United Kingdom. And so I'm lighting our chalice this morning with gratitude to all people of different faiths who've made the effort, the effort to get into dialogue with one another for every stumbled conversation and confused interaction a forever dawning realisation of all that links one person of faith with another. May our small beacon of light, symbol of liberal religion the world over, may that flame burn brightly today. It says on the order of service, story of paths up a mountain, and we will get there eventually. But, but to meander along the way, I'll just tell a couple of stories that the Jesuit priest, Anthony de Mello, made his own. He told the story of a, a tourist visiting a town and complimenting his guide on the number of churches that he saw. Well, the people here, he says, they must surely love the Lord. Hmm. Perhaps they do love the Lord, the guide replied, but they sure as hell hate each other. <laughs> Anthony de Mello also told the story of um, the World Fair of Religions. And at that fair, you can visit the Christian stall and learn that God is love and that there is no salvation outside the church. You must join or face eternal damnation. Or at that fair you can visit the Jewish stall and find that God is all compassionate and that the Jews are God's chosen people. Or the Islamic stall, when you can hear that Allah is all merciful and that salvation comes solely from following the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad. And one visitor to this fair of religions asks another what he thinks of God in the, in the light of these exhibitions. And the friend replies, well, God seems a bit bigoted and unfair, choosing some to save and damning others. And so when that visitor gets home, he has a quiet word with God and asks him why he puts up with this sort of thing. Doesn't he realise that human beings have been giving him a bad name for centuries now? And God gently replies, I didn't organise that fair, and frankly, I'd be far too ashamed ever to visit it. We humans, we've been grappling with the dilemma of truth in the world's religions for a long time, it seems. And when the Buddha was asked which religion was true, he spoke of a mountain. And he said, there is one mountain, there is one summit. And nobody's ever been there and come back to tell us 
what is there, but that represents truth. And the world's religions, they're like many paths up a mountains, some steep and straight, some meandering, some with handholds, some very slippery, scree slopes. But all of those paths are heading up the same mountain. We're all headed in the same direction, the Buddha was trying to tell us. I've long told that story, and, and when I think about the world of faith, I think perhaps a better analogy might be that there are, in fact, many mountains. There are perhaps many truths, but there are plenty of paths to walk on, and the higher we get up the path, well, the better and clearer the view. This piece is written by Ken Cluid. I hope you're impressed by my Welsh accent. <laughs> One of our Unitarian ministers in Wales. It's about the way all of us can make a contribution in life, however insignificant uh, we sometimes feel. In our locality, there are a number of small streams and brooks. Visitors travelling through the area would hardly know of their existence. Although having lived in the village for nearly 35 years, it is only lately that I have become aware of the existence of some of them and the meaning of their names. All these streams flow into larger streams, all of which are tributaries of the River Typhi. For centuries, this river has been Keridigian's main life stream. The Typhi has its source in the hills above the market town of Tregaron and ends its journey near the old port of Cardigan where it submerges itself into the Irish Sea. Before reaching Cardigan Bay, it flows on the level plains of Lampeter and Llandyssel. Along this stretch of its banks, 13 Unitarian chapels are located. Here, hundreds of Unitarian families live. Many have contributed immensely to community life, accomplishing huge tasks by means of their great actions. Others have played a less significant part. Yet, when we look at the full picture, we see that their role is also all-important. We sometimes feel insignificant, insufficient and inadequate, all of which causes difficulties. The failure to, see, to feel within ourselves any value and worth generates discontent and a sense of being unregarded, a feeling often similar to being despised. Whenever such feelings take over our lives, let us remember the small streams and the tributaries. Without them, our larger rivers would not flow and our seas would eventually dry up. We appreciate the first drop of rain to irrigate parched lands after a drought, or water trickling through blocked or frozen pipes. Similarly, we value the tributaries and the streams that are like a sip of water to dampen the lips and quench the thirst. It's not time for the collection yet. But if you find in your pockets a British coin, take it out and have a look around its rim, you perhaps will find the letters FD, or Fid Death 
engraved upon it. These are abbreviated forms of the Latin words fidei defensor. Fidei defensor is a title given to Henry VIII way back in 1521 by the Pope, Pope Leo. The Pope also conferred this honourable title on Henry's then wife, Catherine of Aragon. Now, what happened next? is the stuff of childhood history lessons. Suffice to say, good old King Henry bade both the Pope and Catherine farewell, but he kept the title, Defender of the Faith, although he had swapped the faith. It's been used by English monarchs ever since to mark their position as head of the Church of England. That is the faith they are defending. Anglicanism. I don't know if you remember, but back in 1994, Prince Charles, who I love, Prince Charles commented, I personally would rather see my future role as defender of faith, not the faith. He got short shrift for it, as he often does. But I wonder if any of you ever find yourselves defending faith in some way. A, a friend who is a GP, a doctor, uh, and I were comparing the merits of our jobs, and we both spoke of what we called the party phenomena, when complete strangers, on hearing of your particular line of work, embark on in-depth discussions that you'd rather avoid. Jim gets the, I've had this ingrowing toenail for ages sort of line, or strange pain in my left buttock. And I get... Oh, what a fascinating job. Um, so what do you think happens after death? Or what's your take on the virgin birth? And then sometimes I am on the receiving end of people's rage about religion. Be it from the militant atheist standpoint, the how can you be so deluded when there's not a shred of evidence? Or the world would be all right if it wasn't for religions. They cause all the wars. Or, and sometimes I think this is worse, from the religious enthusiast. A while back, I was buttonholed at a party by someone who complained vigorously to me about the growth of religious pluralism in this country. Now, she'd picked the wrong person if she was hoping to convince me of her viewpoint. So far as I'm concerned, it's a done deal, as they say. We live in a multicultural society that brings with it multiple religions. We live in a multi-faith world. In Britain, we are religiously diverse, and I believe that fact strengthens British society rather than weakens it. Which is not to say, is it, that the religiously diverse path is an easy one. No, it's not. But, but my party conversation reminded me of how words can be used and misused. Religious pluralism would generally be defined as religious diversity, but it's also come to refer to inter-religious dialogue, the bringing together of people from different faiths, not to convert one another, but to hear what each other has to say. The aim is to understand one another better. Religious pluralism is used by some to mean that all religions have validity and worth, a view often held by Unitarians a sort of institutional level version of there is something of God in everyone that we so often borrow from the Society of Friends. And it's this view 
that the woman I met at the party was passionately arguing against. No, no, she said, for her, her faith was true and therefore all the others were false. And furthermore, she had it as a God-given duty to assist people like me in seeing that truth and turning away from falsehood. She wanted to save my soul. Now, would it be intolerant of me to suggest that all parties should have detectors placed at the door that would beep if anyone who had these sorts of views was about to enter? These kinds of discussions are actually not fun. It's hard to say politely to someone, no thanks. You know, if saving my soul means that I'm going to end up as tedious as you, I'm going to choose eternal damnation. <laughs> I'm telling you the funny side of this, but when I did a, a Google search um, on the computer for religious pluralism, within two minutes of searching, I'd found this quotation from uh, an evangelist, Randall Terry. I want you to just let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. We have a biblical duty. We are called by God to conquer this country. We don't want equal time. We don't want pluralism. It's not so nice, is it, really? And maybe Randall Terry isn't to blame. We all know, don't we, that both Christianity and Islam contain within their sacred texts clear teachings that they are the only true faith and that their followers have a moral duty to encourage non-believers to turn to their faith. This is saving souls and it's God's work. But in Britain today, the imperative seems to me to be less about saving souls in the future life and more about building harmonious communities for now. And for that work, interfaith dialogue surely is vital. So this week in November has been designated Interfaith Week by the Interfaith Network. And the Interfaith Network was started in 1987 here in the UK to promote good relations between people of different faiths. Um, its member organisations include representative bodies from the Baha'is, Buddhist, Christian, Hindu, Jain, Jewish, Muslim, Sikh, Zoroastrian communities and many others besides. And it works, this network, with its member bodies to make Britain a place marked by mutual understanding and respect between religions where all can practice their faith with integrity. And its purpose is clear, that far from blurring the boundaries between faiths, no, we should clarify them and be proud of the distinctiveness of our different religions. And as you, you probably know, Unitarians around the country play a considerable part in organisations such as this. And there are many, many of these organisations. Each of you in your, your localities will have... Um, what we call in Kensington and Chelsea a forum of faiths where local faith leaders get together in dialogue. And I know that this kind of dialogue between faiths probably doesn't seem such a big deal to us today, but if we take us ourselves back to the Victorian era, then faiths other than Christianity were regarded in this country with considerable suspicion. There was a great deal of ignorance of other faith beliefs and practices, even amongst scholars. 
Now, this is not the time to embark on lengthy um, descriptions of all the work that, that various Unitarians did in this. Just a few snapshots, brief snapshots might help. Um, my ministerial colleague Vernon Marshall has written a great essay on this if you want to read more. He discovered the work of Sir William Jones, a judge in Bengal and later Unitarian. He was the first European to study and write about sacred literature in India. And this was way back in the late 1700s. There was James Freeman Clarke, professor of theology at Harvard University in the late 1800s, and he was the first academic to offer a course in what was called comparative religions, an attempt to find the links that, that joined all the world's religions. And then here in Britain, Joseph Estlin Carpenter, again a Unitarian, he taught comparative religion at Oxford University. And he was literally one of the first people in Britain to bring an, an awareness of Buddhism's teachings to the West. You might know that in 1893, the, um, the first parliament of the world's religions was um, held in Chicago again with much effort on the part of Unitarian contributors and that parliament of world religion still meets every five years today. The last one was in Australia. There is the International Association for Religious Freedom and the World Congress of Faiths. Um, the World Congress of Faith is holding a lecture in December um, in which Karen Armstrong is going to be speaking and I have one ticket left for the first person that sees me after this uh, service if you would like to come and hear Karen Armstrong who's doing such a lot I think to, to embrace um, interfaith dialogue in her work. As Unitarians we're just such a tiny little group of religious liberals but when I look back at the history of interfaith dialogue and study, I really can see the considerable contribution that we've made over the centuries. It's a bit like that Ken Cluid reading that we heard earlier on from Harold about the, uh, the importance of all the minor little tributaries and streams that lead into the River Tuffy. We can be those small streams that nonetheless make a profound difference. I think many of us share an awareness of Jung's living waters image, that the waters of the spirit are indeed one, and that all the rich variety of the world's religions, they're just human-made manifestations of something, something ever so much deeper. We humans are so very diverse, well no wonder then that our religions reflect that diversity. But beneath all the outer trappings of faith, there's surely a oneness that our faith reflects. Not for nothing does our name start with uni, united in oneness. We live at a time when much that is wrong about religion is painfully obvious to us. Religion can clearly bring out the best and worst in us humans. But I don't think the answer is to imagine a blissful, happy ever after life without religion, which is the sometimes simplistic message of some quite vocal atheists today. Get rid of religion and all will be well? I don't think so. Because of course the problem isn't religion, it's us, us humans. For we are both the potential troublemakers and the potential peacemakers, and we are the ones who have a choice. 
We're the ones who have a choice and we're the ones who have a voice. And I want us to use our voices to be defenders of faith. I think it's one of the things that we do well here at Essex Church. We create spaces in which we can become more articulate about our own faith and allow one another a chance to explore belief in a safe space. So my message, next time you get cornered at a party, speak of your faith and put forward a vision of faith that can be open to all and can profoundly make a difference here in our world today. Amen.